Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and this is the show that takes a deeper look at some of the stories in the news this week and a wider look at the world of business and politics both here in Ireland and around the world. And coming up on this week's show, the bounce back from COVID lockdown is certainly over. Growth is slowing and we can't rule out a recession here in Ireland. But it's certainly not showing up in the Exchequer figures. There's been an extraordinary surplus of 12 billion euro reported for the first 11 months of this year. Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist for the Sunday Business Post, gives us his take on why despite being awash with cash, the government still needs to tread carefully. And so too do CEOs and leaders navigating business in these uncertain times. We'll be asking leadership and human behaviour expert Jody Rogers about some of the alternative ways that business leaders are getting through these challenging times. And finally, with all the buzz about drones this Christmas, if you're lucky enough to get one of these winged wonders, what are you required to do legally to make sure you're protected? We've got an industry expert to tell you the do's and don'ts for your maiden drone voyage this Christmas. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, every business person wants their business to grow and prosper. Now, for that to happen, you need to work really hard and you also need a bit of luck along the way. But staying on top of your game can be an even bigger challenge than making it to the top. With some executives now turning to some unlikely sources to help maintain their edge, we're going to discuss this issue now with Jody Rogers, who's leadership and human behaviour expert and managing director of Simba and author of The Hidden Edge. Why mental fitness is the only advantage that matters in business. Jody, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Happy to be here. Now, Jody, what kind of things are CEOs and top executives doing these days to try and help them stay agile and engaged in their business? Because it's a very challenging business environment, isn't it? it? It absolutely is. And it doesn't seem to be getting any easier at all. And, you know, with the people that we work with, the leadership, the leadership teams and the CEOs, I think where they struggle the most is actually getting the fundamentals right. You know, in this group of people, they don't get that much sleep and um, they're really not able to stay on top of their game as much if they're not paying attention to the fundamentals. So we've certainly noticed uh, a lot of our clients are um, using wearables a lot more to you know track their their vitals so they can pay attention to even if I'm not getting a, a long amount of sleep is it high quality and or is it not um, and we're also saying you know they're they're actually abstaining from partying and from drinking just so they can keep the the clarity of thought of course um, the good ones understand the importance of the inner game and paying attention to thoughts and emotions and if they're getting unnecessarily anxious or angry about things and being able to distance themselves from that. So a lot of the leaders we work with do actually invest time in in meditation and in mindfulness just to create a bit of a gap between the the tendency to just want to react to the moment and and knowing that you actually need to step back from things and be more responsive instead of reactive. You mentioned there the issue of sleep and that's something that, you know, I've heard a lot of over the years that people are tired and fatigued, not just from the lack of sleep, but actually, you know, the days seem longer. If COVID actually did anything for us, do you think there's a greater awareness of, you know, looking after ourselves in a kind of sleep and rest sense? Yeah, do you know... (laughs) COVID did many things, <laughs> many, mm. many things. Not all of them bad, I'll say, actually, because I certainly know a lot of people ask some of those bigger questions of ourselves that we tend to avoid, like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> and when people made big changes with their life as a result. I think um, that, you know, we always had 
a very obvious uh, indicator of when you were in work time and when you were in kind of personal time. And that was the physically going into the office or getting on a train or a bus or, or whatever. And that was removed, of course, within the pandemic. And so people talked about the lines being blurred, but they weren't blurred. They were non-existent. And I actually think Certainly what we observed is we work with, you know, lots of big companies around all the big corporates. And we observed that people were actually working much longer hours, but not being more productive mm. and and not having good quality sleep because of, you know, obviously anxiety and concern. And I think working from home also made us feel well, I have to work harder just to prove that so that people can see that I'm working and um, so it became it became uh, really unhelpful for us. I think as we've reemerged back into into the real life, well, not the real life, the mm. kind of the the previous life, uh, it's brought up other problems because we had a lot more flexibility as we were at home, um, and that meant you could nip out to the shops and get milk if you needed to, and still have your meeting, and you could do the laundry in between whatever calls, and in some ways. We lost some balance in some areas, and we gained it in in other areas. Um, and I think as we've we're reemerging into the world, uh, it's, we almost have to start from scratch mm. again and go, how, how is this going to work this time round? And one of the things I think we've inherited from uh, COVID is this idea of mindfulness being acceptable to discuss in a work context. That that notion of mindfulness and meditation, maybe pre-COVID would have been seen as something that is, you know, something on the the margins of your, your home life and nothing to do with your business life and not built into your business sense. But do you think that that has changed radically? Are you seeing much of that in the corporate world built into their programmes? Absolutely. And we actually create and deliver a lot of their programs. And what I would say is um, previously, pre-pandemic, typically we run leadership workshops, team effectiveness workshop, capability and training programs. And we would always have had the Trojan horse in the topic of um, mental fitness or well-being or whatever inner game, whatever you want to call it. Um, because it was seen as a bit fluffy and mm. a bit soft. And you only really do it if there's something wrong and if there's something broken. And uh, with the pandemic, uh, suddenly people were actually open to talking about this thing because they could feel it. It, you could see it and it was undeniable anymore. And so, I mean, that's actually why I took that moment in time to write the book because it felt like, hold on, people are actually listening and they're paying attention. And so we certainly did a lot more work in that space and it was taken a lot more um, seriously. And I would even say, controversially, it might have been taken a bit too seriously. And by that, I mean, people were being forced into well-being mm. webinars and uh, I started to call it well-beating because if you're being forced into it it's having the opposite effect so these things do I think we absolutely need to offer them um, but then people should uh, have a choice as to whether they're going to opt into them or or not opt into them but you know the whole other part of the the spectrum that I don't think we often talk enough about and and it's partly what the book's about as well is you know we look at um the absence of things right so but the absence of ill health doesn't actually equal health and so whilst it's really important to focus on well-being um, and mental and emotional well-being actually what would happen if we didn't just look at helping people get from minus five or minus three to zero or plus one or plus two but we got people who are just fine and normal and but actually enhance that even further because that can really become a competitive advantage for for you in your own mm. life but within the business that you that you work for. Yeah, so just as being proactive about your physical fitness, that you do the same with your mental uh, agility and work on that when there's not a problem as opposed to waiting until there is a problem. 
It's exactly. It's so simple, that analogy. And we have applied it to the physical um, world and to the medical world. And just as you've said about physical fitness, but for some reason, we haven't applied the same thinking to mental and emotional fitness. So it should be um, as much prevention as it is cure. And it's not, you know, you don't get eat a burger once and then you're obese. Mm-hmm. Same mm-hmm. way you don't go for a run once and now you're a master marathoner. You, unfortunately, because I wish it was that easy, mm-hmm. you have to continuously and consistency, consistently invest and, and put in the practice and put in the time. It's almost like you've done, um, you've done a brilliant job at uh, getting to a place of fitness and now you have to do it every day for the rest your life to be able to maintain it but yeah, it's a, it is it's it's a lifelong work certainly that if you can get that mentality in your, into your head it, w- it would help a lot if you're just tuning in you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Jodie Rogers leadership and human behaviour expert and author of The Hidden Edge Jodie can I just turn to your book a little bit more uh, can you give us a flavour of some of the other recommendations that you talk about in your book for this um, you know better mental health attitude from a work point perspective because I know you're you're still thinking that lots of companies are getting this approach wrong. Yeah yeah absolutely well and it's it's back to just as I was saying the focus is on the kind of um, when we slip down the slope into minus five minus it let's fix people and actually when you think about it you have no capacity to learn in that moment you're oh we've all been there we're overwhelmed we're burnt out I mean people I, I certainly feel it now on the you know in December the end of the year it's it's quite tiring and, and exhausting so you um you get to that point and someone gives you a new idea and a new tool and you just want to hit them over the head with it you have no time for it and so actually if we work with people when they are in an okay place and they have capacity to learn when they inevitably slip down the slope as they will because we all will right mm. it's the same you're gonna you're gonna get a cold and the same way you're going to um get bumps in the road mentally and emotionally but then you'll have tools that you can actually access when you need them and so um we i really strongly believe that we should be um arming people with these tools and demystifying the workings of the mind and our emotions and it's the one thing that we you know we don't we don't get enough information on the, the and that's why I wrote the book to democratise the information really. And then just the, the bit of science behind this you talk in the book about what goes on inside the mind physically would you just take us through a bit of that uh, what what kind of defines yeah. people who are optimists and pessimists? Yeah so like, there's been a, a lot of work done on this and I find I don't uh, I don't love the woo woo stuff I love like science mm. right and the neuropsychology exists. We understand that if we are um, triggered, stress, anxious, etc., our amygdala will kick off. This is our part of our limbic system. Is where our fear center is, and it will shoot a message to the prefrontal cortex, which is where rationale, reason, and logic live. It's the front of the front of the brain, and saying, you know, you're in trouble, right? Imagine you get a text message from your boss saying, where are you? We panic. <gasps> where am I supposed to be? Am I late for something? I was late for something last week. Am I going to get fired? Oh, no. And so this is part of our natural survival mechanism to pay attention to things that um, may, uh, may, may create fear in us. Now, What's really important is the neural pathway from the prefrontal cortex that goes back to the amygdala, which is our self-soothing part that says, you know, calm down, don't worry. They just just want a cappuccino when they think you're at the coffee machine, right? And when you look at the minds of uh, optimists and pessimists, well, actually, in the minds of all humans, the neural pathway between the amygdala to the free prefrontal cortex, that alert and the alarm is a well-trodden path. It's thick and it's strong in everybody. That's how we have survived our predators until today. But when you look at the neural pathway from the prefrontal cortex back to the amygdala, the part that kind of calms us and self-soothes us and brings in rationale and reason, in the mind of uh, optimists, it's strong. In the mind of pessimists, it's weak or non-existent. 
And that's just like, to go back to the analogy of in the gym, just like you exercise your muscles in the gym, we need to also exercise our neural pathways. Yeah, and, and so, so it's not that you're born that way, you can actually work on it. And if you feel very pessimistic and if that fight or flight and fear is is coming from stress rather than an actual physical fear that's there is there are tools available there are, there is something you can do if you're a pessimist to turn your outlook around is that right Absolutely, absolutely. And you. so we know that neuroplasticity is a fact, that your brain is malleable and mm. continues to change. And that gives a lot of hope because we don't have to accept the fixed mindset of that's just the way I've always been because you can be different if you want to practice. Mm. As you said, Jodie, there, this has been a very difficult year for lots of different reasons, but many businesses find themselves now limping to the holiday season. If you're a business owner or team leader um, and you've you've been letting all this fatigue build up and you're getting towards the holiday season, what, what kind of tools could you, or recommendations or advice could you give to somebody who is feeling very tired and perhaps starting to make those poor business decisions because of fatigue that sets in? Give us one or two recommendations. Great. So, uh, and the poor business um, decisions is really critical because there's the the law of diminishing returns. We work harder, we work longer, but actually it's counterproductive Mm. because we don't have the clarity of thought that we need. We're not well rested to be creative or to make the right decisions. So actually drawing a line behind things and realizing, you know, when it takes you 40 minutes to write that email when it should have taken you three, that's a big red flag that you should step away from the computer and you need to switch off. And I'd also say as humans, we have a tendency to focus on the gap And what I mean by that is where we are today versus where we want to be, what it is we want to achieve. And actually, whilst the gap can be motivating because it's usually a goal, it's also a bit overwhelming and draining, particularly at this time of year. And so looking backwards at the gain is really important. So look over the year and look at the things that you've achieved. Look at what you're grateful for and that will give you energy to move forward. And just switching off because most of us aren't saving lives. And so actually putting an out of office on, turning the notifications off on your phone and really giving yourself a proper break will even if you do that for three days, it will feel like you've just had a two week holiday. Mm. Jodie, one of the lines that really struck me in your book was we are not our thoughts. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember when we're overwhelmed by all this data and information that, you know, you can get outside of this ridiculous news cycle that we find ourselves scrolling through uh, every single day. Fascinating look uh, at what some CEOs are doing and some leaders are doing. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Jodie Rogers leadership and human behaviour expert, managing director of Simba and author of The Hidden Edge. Jodie, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, not just for Christmas, drones may be number one on the wish list this Christmas, but the legal requirements, they're for life. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Take a listen to this. That was, of course, the iconic flight of the Bumblebee. And you should all get ready for a different type of buzzing in the air as drones are set to be the go-to Christmas gift for little people and lots of big children too this year. This week, the Irish Aviation Authority issued its own appeal for new owners to fulfil their legal obligations by registering new drones over a certain weight. We're joined now by Mark Prendergast, who's founder of the Safe Drone Academy. Mark, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mandy. Nice to talk to you this morning. Now, first, Mark, tell me about your own business, the Safe Drone Academy. Who who uses it for guidance? Is it business or personal? Can anybody go to? Uh, well, Safe Drone Academy was set up by myself in 2015, so we're going now seven years, and it's a school basically fo- focused on teaching people the legal aspects of flying drones. There are 
certain regulatory requirements, uh, including the requirement to have permits. So pilots, remote pilots must have a permit to fly a drone in many cases. And we basically run the syllabus of training, uh, both the theoretical training and the practical training that is required to get those regulatory permits. So we're going for seven years now. Uh, initially, we were operating under the Irish regulatory system. But now since 2021, there's a new EU regulatory system in place. So everyone from recreational pilots uh, to commercial pilots uh, operating, a, you know, small, medium and large enterprises, uh, local authorities, all those uh, type of people that want to operate or use drones for either recreational purposes or for work purposes have come through our school. So, Mark, when you say everyone needs a permit, if I'm sitting there on Christmas morning and my husband has bought me a drone, uh, do I need to get a permit before I start using it? What are the actual regulations for personal use? Well, the regulations are European regulations now. So if we if we're not talking about a toy and if I just clear that up first, if, if we're talking about toy drones, they, a toy drone is um, manufactured and designed under the European Toy Directive. And it will have a label on it that says it's for use by children under the age of 14. So if we're not talking about that type of drone, um, then we're talking about the drone that might have to be initially registered. So the operator of that drone or the person or the company, let's say, that's operating that drone will have to register as an operator of drones. And they'll do that with the Irish Aviation Authority here in, in, in Ireland, or if you're in Europe, it will be with the with your country's aviation authority. So that's the first thing that must happen. And when you register, you go onto a database of users um, of drones, and you'll be given a basic kind of registration number, which is a label that must be affixed to your any aircraft or any drone that you're then using. That's the first thing that must happen. So the operator, be it a person or a company, must register their drone. Uh, the next thing is the pilot then uh, must uh, take some form of training. Now that training can be very simple in that it might be just a matter of watching a very simple and short safety video and you'll do that with the Aviation Authority and uh, you'll answer some simple questions on that and you'll get your basic foundation pilot uh, certificate. Um, but if you want to do uh, something a little bit more advanced, you might need a little bit more advanced training and uh, you might be required then to come to school like Safe Drone Academy. The Irish Aviation Authority said this week that they had over nearly eight and a half thousand registered operators in Ireland. That seems very low to me. What do you think? Um, it does somewhat seem a little low. Um, I wouldn't know the percentages. Um well, firstly, it says there's eight and a half thousand people out there who have registered, which is great to see. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people and uh, maybe even some companies out there that are not fully au fait with the regulatory system and not fully au fait with the requirement to uh, register if they are using drones. Uh, so, you know, the IEA through their their uh, promotion this week are basically highlighting the fact that registration is a legal requirement and uh, hopefully then uh, that'll increase the numbers. It does seem a little low, but on the positive side, people are registering, which means there are people listening and and uh, find, going about and finding out uh, what the regulations require. You see, I know I know a lot of people who just have have got the drones. They're not registered, and I suspect a lot of people at Christmas will take it out of its box, figure out how to use it, throw it up in the air, not do any training, not register it anywhere, um, and that there's a distinct lack of awareness. And, and then when we go to issues like GDPR or privacy, that has real implications. Do you think that um, there are enough guidelines out there for that type of um, awareness about surveillance? A friend of mine this week was telling me about being on, on a beach with his children where a drone was hovering over. Like, What can people do if they're unhappy with drones in their own personal space? Well, you're right in what you say. The, the awareness of regulations has been an issue and that's... Uh, part of the reason why we have this European uh, regulatory system now and part of the requirements of that regulation are that 
at the manufacturing and the retail level that manufacturers and retailers are now required by by law and this will become more important going forward over the next number of years but by law they are required to provide a certain level of guidance uh, with drones when they're sold so that will help uh, promote the the understanding of the regulatory requirements uh, promotions like the IAs uh, promotion this week uh, for the Christmas period also helps with regulations and uh, people's understanding of it. So more and more people should become aware that there are regulations and there are rules to follow because there are a lot of people out there who through no fault of their own just have not been able to find the information. Uh, the information itself needs to be easier to understand and it needs to be easier to find and the IA again have a, a very good website uh, and there is a section or a portal there that deals with drones and a lot of drone information can be found there. Um, if people, GDPR is important and people's privacy and people's data is important and that's also covered uh, under the drone regulations as well. There is a, you know, sections of the regulation that points towards GDPR. So, you know, operators, be they recreational pilots or commercial pilots, should be very aware that they're operating equipment with very high resolution imaging systems on them in the cameras and they should be very conscious of you know using that uh, uh, camera system mm. and uh, mm. taking images of people um but a lot of recreational pilots out there you know they they they're not out there to do anything particularly uh, bad and and you know in the same way they should be sensible with taking photos with their cameras on their phones uh, so they should be with the uh, the cameras on their drones. Commercial operators, um, they have a little bit more of a responsibility when it comes to collecting uh, visual data or even uh, sound recordings with their, with their, um, with their drones. And they should, you know, really look into the GDPR aspects of what they're doing. Do have a data uh, um, policy. Do a data protection impact assessment on how they're using their equipment and make sure they're, they're using it correctly so that, you know, members of the public, people out and about can be reassured that, you know, the drones that are being used are being used uh, responsibly. Uh, there is, you know, the adoption of drones in general by the wider public. A big piece of that is their awareness of what the capabilities of drones are and their assurance that drones are being used um, in mm-hmm. the correct manner. And, and that's a, a big piece that the drone industry has to, a big problem the drone industry has to solve, you know. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Mark Prendergast, who's founder of the Safe Drone Academy. Mark, just turning to that commercial and industry side of um, drones for a moment. Um, you've been obviously working in this space since 2015 and you've seen an exponential growth in the use of drones. But just give us a, an idea about the commercial side of things. How many more people are getting involved in testing or piloting drone deliveries in Ireland? Is that growing exponentially also? Uh, it is. It's growing year on year. Obviously, there was a slowdown over the COVID period, but uh, recently, uh, the European Commission uh, launched our new strategy for drones across the EU. And uh, within that strategy, they've indicated that they expect the commercial use of drones to grow by about 12.5% up towards uh, 2030. And uh, the drone industry in the EU should be worth somewhere in the region of 14.5 billion by 2030. So definitely the trajectory is is upwards uh, for uh, the drone industry. Um, the markets, you know, drones are, are very, very useful tools um, for commercial operators. They're great at uh, capturing data, great at imaging, and they're being used in all sorts of sectors, uh, such as agriculture, you know, construction, filmmaking, healthcare, public safety. The use cases for drones is, is massive. Uh, the regulations are now in place. The EU regulations are some of the best in the world, if not the best, and they're facilitating the growth of the industry, and it's part of the Commission strategy to grow the industry in the EU. Mark, um, when a company is trying to set up uh, for a drone testing uh, facility here in Ireland, where do they start? Are there planning applications involved in this? Do local communities get to have a say? Well, if, if a company is looking to get into the uh, industry, 
Uh, first place they should really look to is the Aviation Authority's IAA.ie. Within there, you'll find all the basic information. You'll also find links to uh, the European uh, Aviation Safety Agency, which is uh, the European kind of aviation regulator as such. And there's a lot of uh, very useful information in there. But first and foremost, uh, they'll need to you know, register as an operator of drones and they'll need to train their pilots to a certain standard. Uh, so that's the first uh, uh, thing they really should do to get on the uh, into the industry. And as well as that, they'll need to train their pilots to use uh, the, the drone. The drone really for commercial operators is just a tool and it's going to, you know, be as useful as the person that's wielding that tool. So they'll want to put a bit of effort into training their pilots to not only fly legally, but also fly in a way that is going to be useful uh, for their company in terms of using that drone to, you know, capture the data that they want to put into reports or to put into uh, investigation, whatever it is they need to use the drone. But so first and foremost, just become legally um, a legal operator of drones, train the pilots to uh, a regulatory standard and then train their their pilots to use the drone and to get the drone, um, to make the drone useful for what it is they want to do. And I guess on the community side of things, um, if people do have concerns about it, they can find that information on the Irish Aviation Authority site also to, to just uh, balance that out and give the other side of the argument. Because there are people who have concerns about privacy, about noise pollution. Um, and uh, I know that, that that is a real thing in a lot of communities where it's happening. If I could just say, you do see that with the, the you know the largest uh, companies out there. And we, we have one of the best um drone companies in the world here in Ireland. It's homegrown, man of drone delivery. And they're operating out in uh, in, um, in Balbriggan and have plans to expand further and even into the US. Uh, and part of their you know, work package is to get out into the community to make people aware of what the drone is, what it can do, and to allay any safety concerns. So if you're a very large operator like they are, you know, it would be um, you know, very beneficial to bring the public along to to ease the public into, uh, you know, what the drone can do and to understand what it can do and to ease any concerns or allay any concerns they might have. Yeah, because I think there's that distinct lack of awareness out there about the regulations and about the legal requirements for individuals uh, and also on the community level, what people can do to kind of have their say about testing in, in their own areas. But Mark, just to finish up here now with uh, going back to the Christmas side of things and if somebody um, is lucky enough to get one of these winged wonders in their uh, Santa gift package what is the first couple of things that they need to do when they take it out of the box? Okay well just as I said um, if it's if it's a toy drone they haven't got much to worry about in terms of legally operating it so if Santa brings you know, a drone to a small child, uh, the parents of that child shouldn't be too concerned. Just basically read the manual and uh, maybe supervise their child while they're while they're using the drone. If it's if it's a more technical drone and uh, maybe not one that's supposed to be used by children, uh, again, the first thing I would say to do is read the manual. Uh, we're all great at, you know, taking equipment out of the box and uh, trying to operate it straight away. But really, there is a lot of information on the safe use of, of, of the drone. Uh, within the manual so do read the user manual there's also when you start to use it initially a lot of these drones will have a screen or will require your, a phone to be connected to it and within that screen there'll be basic training offered or basic advice offered on how to fly the drone safely uh, i would then suggest that people do as i said go to the iea's website iaa.ie go to their drone section and read up on some of the, the do's and don'ts uh, of operating drones be mindful we talk about when we're flying drones we talk about two risks air risk and ground risk so ground risk means you know be conscious of people around you uh, don't fly your drone close to people who are not involved in your drone operation and be very mindful of where you're flying the drone in the sky there are a lot of airspace areas that are prohibited for the use of drones and they're all the, the usual places that you might think such as uh, around airports, and uh, in many cases, those prohibited areas can uh, can stretch quite far away from airports, much further away than you might suggest, might think. 
Um, so do be conscious of that and um, don't fly around prisons and the like. Um, but uh, so always be, con be conscious of that ground risk and that air risk. Look to the IEA's website. Uh, if your drone has a camera and weigh or weighs more than 250 grams, uh, you will be required to register with the Aviation Authority as an operator of drones. And then depending on the weight of the drone, um, you might need some pilot training as such to uh, uh, qualify for the regulatory certification that is required to operate drones. Okay, well, Mark, lots and lots of sound advice there. One person uh, we know won't be using drones is Santa. We're both told that he's sticking to the old reindeers this year. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Mark Prendergast, founder of the Safe Drone Academy. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Mandy. My pleasure. Coming up next, despite the economic slowdown, the Irish exchequer is now awash with cash and bulging at the seams. But choppy waters lie ahead. Find out more after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, finally, this week, last week's exchequer figures were simply extraordinary. The Irish economy has come through COVID-19. Well, the recovery has been remarkable. But what of the cost of living crisis, the international slowdown and the knock on factors like the tech wobble and the energy crisis, the housing crisis, just to name but a few. Is there a turning point approaching? Well, here to give us his take on the performance of the Irish economy in 2022 and hopefully some predictions for 2023. I'm joined now by Dan O'Brien, who's chief economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist for the Sunday Business Post. Dan, you're very welcome as always. Thank you, Mandy. Now, first up, those exchequer returns uh, for December. Can you just take us through what the top line figures were? And particularly, I'm interested in your take about the level of taxation that the government is collecting at the moment. Quite extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah, look, there's been uh, for the first 11 months of the year, we have numbers now. And uh, it really has been uh, a year where taxes of pretty much every kind, whether it's income tax, VAT or corporation tax, the latter in particular, uh, have rebounded very strongly. Now, part of that is to do with inflation, but it also reflects an economy that is still growing, despite all of the headwinds we've been facing this year, an economy that's still growing uh, at probably one of the fastest paces in, in the developed world. Yeah, and the type of tax I found very interesting, it's it's high-end jobs, it's high tax, it's kind of fueled by these multinationals in pharma and tech. Do you think that we're at a peak kind of money-making machine point for the exchequer? Um, and, and what could compromise that model in the months and, and indeed the year ahead? There are so many things uh, at the moment in terms of risks. Uh, but there are also a lot of strengths. And this is, really makes it an unusual time. Three months ago, I, I was really addled by the, the picture. I'm a little more optimistic now. The resilience, both the Irish and, and, and indeed world economy, European economies have shown in the face of inflation, of the energy shock, um, you know, the pandemic effects haven't been as lasting as I think most economists thought there hasn't been what we call scarring effects on the labor market. In other words, you know, employment fell during the pandemic, uh, but it's bounced back in Ireland, many other countries, not every country, but it's, it's certainly in Ireland, it's bounced back. And now actually more people are working in Ireland than three years ago before the pandemic, which is, you know, pretty extraordinary given given the shock that the pandemic had, lockdowns, then the inflation, the war, the energy shock. So there's been a lot of resilience in, in the economy. So for that reason, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can continue to grow and that, you know, there's only a sort of mild slowdown uh, that we have over the winter months, which, which you know, most people are anticipating given those headwinds. Um, but uh, you know, it could be a lot worse if, if all of the risks out there materialise, we, we could be in for a, a worse outcome in 2023. Mm. And indeed, at your own conference uh, during the week, uh, the central bank governor had some interesting things to say about expectations on inflation and perhaps even interest rates and what we saw this week with the European Central Bank and what we're expecting next week. Take us through your outlook on the kind of more macro uh, figures that uh, we might expect on the inflationary front and on int interest rates. Well, so again, a lot of uncertainty uh, around the inflation picture. So I think there's reason 
to feel that we're close. Now, I say that as somebody, I'll put my hands up and say this time last year, I felt that inflation was transitory. It's It's been higher than I had expected. Now, you could attribute that to, to the war, pushing up energy prices more and food prices more. Um, but I would hope that we're at sort of the peak of inflation it'll start coming down the rate of inflation will start coming down next year mm. now that won't be enough to stop the ecb putting up interest rates further so i think we've got you know a good bit to go before the, the central bank feels that its mandate of keeping inflation around two percent uh, is on target to be met so i think we're going to have an additional headwind of higher interest rates at least for the first, you know, in the first quarter, half of next year. Uh, but hopefully they'll be able to ease off on that break when they see inflation coming down. Um, I'm not betting the house on that. But uh, again, you know, I'm a little bit more optimistic as the months have passed. The things are going in the right direction. Uh, but as I say, I can't stress enough the risks of, you know, something else going wrong in the energy markets inflation going back up again, the central bank feeling it needs to hit that break even harder. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. I wish I could be, be be more certain, Mandy, but look, that's 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 a reflection of the, the uncertainties we're facing. No, not at all. And it's completely understandable. I was talking to somebody from the European Commission at quite a high level during the week. And the reality is they just don't know, particularly for the first and second quarter of next year, what to expect. I mean, we have then the energy issue, obviously, that... Uh, the government here and all around Europe are dealing with the moment and the supply issues that might lie ahead for 2023 and 2024 seems to be a real concern for them. Absolutely. And, you know, any, any, anyone who comes on to your show or anywhere else and says they, you know, they, they very confidently feel X, Y or Z about energy, about inflation next year. You know, we just don't know. These are extremely, in my sort of quarter of a century involved in the economics business, I never remember a time where there's been as many different uncertainties, you know, people talking about poly crises mm. um, uh, and, and so many different things that are that are up for grabs and that are changing. So it's it's it is a very uncertain time. Um, again, I, I would kind of maybe I'm consoling myself, but every time I look at sort of new data that comes out, whether it's European or Irish, most of the time better than expected. Mm. Uh, and that's so that's that resilience piece that we've seen uh, over all of the course of the year. Um, so, you know, the, the resilience is, is something you hope lasts. And it means that, you know, there could be a, a slowdown over the winter months and then we, we get back to stronger, stronger recovery. Just turning to the other side of, of our own recovery, one of the things that has been very evident is, you know, the labour market uh, record. Two and a half million people in employment in the third quarter of the year and unemployment now just 4.4%. I think the the Department of Finance are predicting similar figure, maybe 5% for next year. But um, that also brings with it some problems, doesn't it? Could we be looking at wage prices and uh, spiralling next year, maybe? One of the many worries, um, you know, the, 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 this is one of the extraordinary things about this period uh, where we have so many headwinds, but incredibly low on, on unemployment. Mm. And that's the case in most countries. And most forecasters, you know, the OECD, the IMF, while they expect, you know, stagnation over the next year or so in most economies, they also don't expect High, high unemployment or much higher unemployment. They expect it to go up just a little by you know, maybe a percentage point in most countries from, you know, four to five or five to six. And, you know, that's an unusual recession to have. Uh, you get very little increase in unemployment. And it's just one of the, the indicators that makes things um, that, that, that is quite confusing at the moment. Um, the other thing I think it has to be said, and we haven't mentioned it so far, is despite very tight labor markets, wages haven't you know, risen anywhere near inflation. So vast majority of people are actually worse off in real terms now than they were a year ago. What is, uh, what, why do you think that is, Dan? Why um, aren't uh, kind of businesses responding to this? Why haven't we seen uh, the wage increases, say, that they've seen in Germany? It's, it's, it's a question that I think everyone's asking. Why in a tight labor market when you've got low unemployment are workers not looking for more immediate pay increases to match the uh, infl to match inflation, to keep their real incomes where, where they were? Now, I suppose there's, with all those uncertainties out there, maybe people are not, don't want to take a chance and 
push too hard for you know big double digit pay increases maybe people feel and there's survey evidence to say this that people feel this very high rate of inflation around 10% won't last mm. and it'll come back down and that's like that's the danger next year is that if this does last people are going to start as they did in the 70s and 80s say look we need higher pay increases to offset the effect on our real incomes and then we get into this spiral now you know that doesn't always happen and it certainly happened in the 70s and 80s it doesn't always happen uh, is in no way guaranteed, but it's one of the big fears, particularly for central banks, that we'll get into this spiral where wages tra- uh, uh, chase prices, prices, uh, companies then put up, as they pay more, they then put up their prices, and then workers seek another round, and we get into that kind of wage price spiral that, that we had in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but hopefully that can be avoided, uh, and uh, particularly if inflation comes down quickly. Yeah, maybe it's just a legacy of social partnership and we're just a very compliant nation still uh, maybe that will change in the coming months as, as people feel real pressure if you're just tuning in you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Dan O'Brien Chief Economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist with the Sunday Business Post Dan let's just move um, beyond our own sort of domestic economy I spoke to you earlier this year and we were both consumed with Brexit um, has Brexit affected us as much as we economists or news people kind of predicted uh, have we benefited in any way from it but what's your take on the effect of brexit in 2022 on us right well i I think since britain left where there has been a significant impact has been the amount we import from britain we now have those new barriers to Mm. trade because britain isn't isn't a member of the eu anymore so that's reduced the amount we we import from Britain. Uh, So we've switched, uh, that's what they call trade diversion. We've entered a shift where we buy things because of those barriers and there's been uh, uh, an impact there. Surprisingly, or somewhat, maybe not so surprisingly, because the British haven't put up barriers on their side. Um, So Irish exports to Britain haven't been uh, noticeably affected by Brexit. So that may change if they eventually do put up the barriers that they're entitled to put up and sort of are reciprocal in terms of the kind of barriers that the EU side has put up, that that, that will affect Irish exports. But so far, uh, it's had a very, no real discernible effect on, on the export side of the economy, which is obviously good for, for producers who sell into the UK, mm. to Britain, I should say. Yeah, good and, and unexpected. Um, just beyond that then, on the global economy, I always like getting your take on the emerging markets. What's kind of happening there that we're mentioning a lot in the context of COP27? Okay, a a mixed picture. Um, Mm. In in some of the emerging economies are really suffering from the the change in financial conditions. So we've had this period of very low interest rates for a long time. And, you know, many emerging markets were able to borrow at quite relatively low interest rates. That piece has changed. And now you're getting some, you know, we saw in Sri Lanka, for example, very, you know, almost collapse of government, really, really dire economic situation. Um, There's a risk that the more indebted uh, developing countries are going to fall back into into periods of debt crisis. Um, other countries, uh, you know, not d- d- doing better, say India, for example, than the other huge country in, in the sort of emerging space is China. And it has a lot of uncertainties in terms of its property market. Will the Chinese economy, after all the predictions over the decades, finally have a recession? It's also been affected by the zero COVID policy, which is being uh, eased at the moment. Uh, so uh, a very, I suppose, a very mixed picture across the across the developing world or emerging markets, as, 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 uh, as sometimes they're called. Yeah, and its relationship with the US, with China's relationship with the US, ever more complex and ever more strained. And um, finally, Dan, I just wanted to to mention a piece that you'd written at the kind of early stage of the year, um, and it was very interesting. You were talking about um, Ireland and the things we were you kind of were guilty of ourselves for not kind of understanding the success of the Irish economy and doing the most with it. But you talked about a national inferiority complex and the second question of this wider international trend, uh, which was this view of life is getting worse and that elites of various kinds are conspiring to keep it that way. Um, You talked about a getting to a Denmark state of mind, if you remember. In your view, over the course of 2022, have, have, have those two things either intensified or are we any closer to that phrase, getting to a Denmark model? Well, on, on the sort of anger piece, 
I, I think that that I, it certainly hasn't eased. Mm. Certainly, if social media is anything to go by, um, it, it hasn't eased, and maybe maybe that's the wrong way to to look at it. But there was a survey, for example, during the year uh, of across the OECD asking about how how satisfied people were with government, and younger people in Ireland had the lowest level of satisfaction uh, across those those countries surveyed, whereas older people were more satisfied. So you know there could be a generational thing mm. going going on there. Um, there's also the housing crisis. Which particularly, you know, the rental part is really, you know, the worst rental situation I've lived in seven countries. I've never seen uh, a rental market as difficult and as, as, as uh, both in terms of finding a place and the rents that are being that are being paid. So that's really tough for younger people. And then the wider cost of living crisis on top of everything else means that, you know, higher inflation means real incomes are being being squeezed. So, you know, that's a lot to make. For, to make people unhappy, so uh, certainly don't 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 think that sense of anger um, has 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 lessened this year. Probably, if anything, uh, people feel angrier than, than than a year ago, particularly younger people. And our national inferiority complex that continues unabashed. Well, unabashed maybe it's too 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 strong, but you know I often do wonder, uh, you know. Uh, there are countries like Italy, you know, where I lived and, and, and they've really had, you know, no economic growth for 20 years. And it's very difficult to find a job. And, you know, they have a lot of real problems, whereas Ireland is the fastest growing country in the world or one of the fastest growing countries in the world. And a huge number of people come and live here for the, all the opportunities. Yet, there's an, you know, we, we have an awful lot of negativity and focus on, on the negatives rather than, you know, what, uh, things that are that are going well. Mm. And I think it should be said, you know, a large part of the housing the problem is actually a problem of success that, you know, the economy has grown so strongly and employment has grown as strongly as, as rapidly as it has. And that so many people have come to take up jobs that that's put huge pressure on the housing market. So, you know, in some ways, um, the housing problem is in part uh, a, a problem of success that demand just our supply of housing can't keep up with a, an economy that's growing as rapidly as the Irish economy has been for a decade. Yeah, I tuned into an investment conference during the week and they were talking about how Ireland could attract more jobs and the conclusion was just build more houses. But I think you're right, Dan. I think uh, we're getting a little bit better at understanding our place in the world when it comes to the success of the Irish economy, notwithstanding the very significant failures. Interesting, you say that it's the worst rental market that you've seen in all of your time analysing it and also the worst geopolitical complex mix of problems. I'm sorry that there's no happier note to leave it there, but Dan, that's your review of the Irish economy in 2022. And thank you for joining us today. That's Dan O'Brien, who is Chief Economist for the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist for the Sunday Business Post. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Friday mornings, we're always available as a podcast for us on the News Talk app. Next week, we have a special show for you as some of our favourite guests during the year will be sharing their favourite political and business books of 2022. You never know, it might help you with your Christmas shopping. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all your Sunday newspapers. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.